0: Bibles, please, to Romans chapter number 12. Romans chapter number 12, as we continue on our journey through this great chapter of the Bible. In verse 1 and 2 of this chapter, we learn that we ought to surrender ourselves fully. In verse 3, We learn that we ought to examine ourselves honestly. And now tonight, as we pick up in verse number 4 and continue down through verse number 8, here we learn that we ought to cooperate willingly and participate faithfully. I'll explain that, of course, when we get to our text here tonight. When we come to this section and this is what I want you to really remember. When we come to this section, it shows us what it looks like for us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, you know, a lot of people are familiar with that verse. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, with the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know it. You can quote it. You've heard it over and over and over again. But what does that mean? What do you do? I mean, what's different between you and, uh, let's say, another Christian. What does it look like for us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice? Well, as you're going to see, this is what it means. It means that we surrender our body to the body of Christ. We surrender our body to the body of Christ. In other words, it is the Christian's commitment to the church and those folks that see no need to be associated with the church will have a really difficult time with these verses. I, I love that contemporary song, How Beautiful is the Body of Christ. But I'm not sure everybody understands what that song is really all about. It talks about being his hands and being his feet, and, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people that have heard that song that have no clue as to what the body of Christ is all about. So hopefully tonight, as we look at these verses, uh, that'll change their way of thinking. In verse number 4 and 5, Paul speaks about our part. And then in verse 6, 7, and 8, he speaks about our participation. And so those are the two things that we're going to look at tonight concerning the service of the saints that's the title of the message the service of the saints so let's look at our part in verse 4 and 5 for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another As you know, there's a lot of confusion as to what a church is. So let's think for a moment about what a church isn't. The church is not the building. Somebody goes driving down the road and they look over and they see the church building and say, you know, look at that brown church, that brick church, that white church, or whatever it is, you know, as though the building is the church. And that's not true. This building is not the church At all, but a lot of people think that's the way, you know, it is. Not only that, the building, or the church rather, is not a denomination. People think of the church as being the Baptist and the Methodist and the Presbyterian and so on and so forth, but that's not true. The denomination does not constitute a church. Not only that, the church is not what a lot have described as a universal invisible body. Whenever they talk about the body of Christ, and you'll hear even some so-called Baptists make this glaring air, and that is when they speak about the body of Christ, they're speaking about, as they say, the universal invisible church. What is that? The Bible says there is one body. In other words, there can only be one kind of a body. Now, you can't have a local visible body and a universal invisible body, uh, because then you've got two different things, and there's only one. The mistake they make actually goes all of the way back to the Reformation, whenever Luther was trying to justify leaving the Catholics, and somebody asked him about that, you know, how could he desert the church, and where is the church, and... You know, he made the statement, well, you know, the church consists of God's people everywhere. It's a universal, invisible church. And uh, that is a Protestant view. That's not a Baptist view. So that's what a church is not. Well, what is church? What does it mean when we say we are a church? The English word church comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, that means a called-out assembly or a congregation that's what a church is now you could use that same word to identify any any group of people any congregation of people in fact the bible in some places does use that particular word of people that are assembled together it uses it on one occasion of the old testament jews as the church in the wilderness now, that doesn't mean that it was the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that there was an assembly of Jews in the wilderness. Are you with me? So when you think of church, you need to think about assembly or congregation. That's what the word means. And naturally, that does away with a universal, invisible something or another that nobody can see or attend. And so it is a local, visible congregation. The definition would be that it is a local, visible congregation or fellowship, assembly, of born again, baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that have been united together by a common faith and fellowship of the gospel for the purpose of glorifying God through obedience to His Word. That describes what a church is. And we need to understand that because it's important to the Lord. In fact, the Bible, in trying to help us understand the nature of the church, uses several different figures of speech. For example, and by the way, each one of these different figures of speech describes some different aspect as to how the church relates to the Lord. We, We think about the fact that the church is likened unto the Bride of Christ. Well, naturally, that speaks about the intimate relationship between Christ and the church, the bride of Christ, that which is so very valuable to to Him. It also speaks about the church as being like a building. Paul uses that designation over in Ephesians where he says it's the tabernacle of God. It's a building, a habitation of God and tells us that the Holy Spirit dwells within. You see, the church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That makes the church unlike any other gathering on the face of the earth. You can have an assembly, you know, down at the ball game. You can have an assembly at the fair. You can have an assembly anywhere, but it's not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's the presence of God's Spirit that makes a church different than any other assembly. So... Uh, the Lord says it's like a building. The Lord says it's like a bride. It also describes it as being like a flock, uh, a flock of sheep. And naturally, when we think about that, we're talking about our relationship to the Lord, that is, the relationship uh, to, uh, to the Good Shepherd. The Bible speaks about the church as being like a candlestick. We saw that when we studied the book of Revelation. It is a like a candlestick. We are to be the light of the world. The Bible also describes the church as being a husbandry. That is, it's like a farm. It's something that produces fruit and uh, is to be productive. But here in our text and, and throughout the New Testament again and again, we find the church likened unto a body. And whenever we look at this, we find that it is a a divine body because it's the body of what? The body of Christ. In other words, it belongs to Him. It represents Him. It is a divine body. And that's why I have no problem when I say that the church is the most important institution in all of the world. It belongs to the Lord. It is indwelt by the Lord. It is a divine body. Not only is it a divine body, as we look at this this particular usage, the likeness of the body again and again, we find that it is a dynamic body. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, where he reminds us there that we are empowered by the Spirit of God indwelt by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. So as a congregation indwelt by the Spirit of God, we are enabled to do things that ordinarily we could never do on our own. So it's a dynamic divine body, and it is a developing body. Because remember, he's picturing the church here as a living organism. A body, something that is alive, something that is able to grow and grow into mature. And we need to think of the church in that vein. But tonight, I especially want you to focus in on the fact that it is a diversified body. That is, it's made up of many members. And that's what he is emphasizing here in these verses. Many different members functioning in different ways. And when you think about a body, you're talking about members, but we're talking about unity and togetherness. For example, if we had a pile of arms over here and a pile of heads, that'd be gory, wouldn't it? A pile of heads here and a pile of legs over here and maybe a pile of trunks over here. Uh, None of those would constitute a body, right? Right. Because they they are just various disassociated members. But it's not a body until all of the body comes together. That is, the various members come together. And in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 16, when Paul's talking about the church, he speaks about it being fitly, fitly joined together. And then he uses a word that really shows us just how Bound we are, and it 's the word compacted, compacted together. When I worked for the state highway department, we run compaction tests. Uh, brother Ron Peggy just got back from Missouri and I worked on highway sixty five down through there. Before they could pave anything, we had to run compaction tests. You know, they would make the fill out of the big large rocks that they had blown out of the, out of the mountain and build up the fills across the valleys and then they'd put dirt on top of that. But then they would put a base material on top of that and that base material had to be watered. It had to be rolled down with a heavy roller again and again until it passed our test. And we would dig a little hole and it was all very, very precise and take all of the materials out of that hole and we would weigh it and we would dry it. And in doing that, we could run what is called a compaction test and tell whether it was stable enough that it would support the pavement that they were going to put on it. And he uses this word compacted to describe the relationship of the members in the church the members of the body, that they are fitly joined together and they are compacted. And that's the way that a church ought to be. That's the way that a body is. Now, all of that being true, for us to be successful as a church, it is essential that every member find their place and fulfill their place in the body of Christ. Every member has some gift. Look back at verse 3. We already studied this, but look at it again. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt, notice, to every man the measure of faith. And so we see that God has gifted every person in some way In the church. So every person has a gift of some kind. Every member of the church has a function to perform. That makes every member of the church of importance. A lot of times we get to thinking, well, you know, I'm not one of the important members of the church. Well, if you are functioning in your proper place, you are an important member of the church. The only thing that would make you unimportant to the church is for you to be unfaithful in using the gifts that God has given you. And in order to show the importance of the various members, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you don't need to turn there, but that entire chapter has to do with that very thing of Paul showing the Corinthians how that each and every member had an important place in the church. You know, maybe it will help to think of the team concept as an illustration. A team, whether it's basketball, baseball, or football, a team is made up of several different members, and every member has a different assignment. For that team to click on all cylinders, for that team to be successful, for it to function properly, each member has to learn to play their position. If you get out of position, the, the opponent is going to exploit that flaw in your team, and you're going to be doomed. That's true in every single sport. That's why you don't have your center in the backcourt, you know. You' got some guy seven foot tall and he wants to play point guard or something you know just because well i don 't want to, i don 't want to be up there i 'd rather be out there it doesn 't make any difference where you want to be it 's where you fit in and whenever it comes to uh, to to baseball, for example, just because you you know if your assignment is third base and I played a lot of third base years ago in semi pro baseball and uh and and complain because I wasn't at shortstop. That's where I wanted to be. So I had a tendency, you know, to overplay my position and to get out there in His way. And you have to learn to stay where your assignment is. We we think about, and and most of of us don't have a clue how complex football really is. You know, we watch it on television and uh, we think we know what's going on. But if you ever watch a game on television with somebody that is really well versed in the game, somebody that let's say is a, is a very knowledgeable coach, and they will see all kinds of stuff out there going on. All I saw was he hiked the ball, he took the ball, he throwed the ball, some dude caught it running down the field. That's the only thing I saw. I did, I didn't see all of the blocking schemes and, you know, and all of the other stuff that's going on. And you, you, look, you have to play your position. You can't just, you know, be where you want to be. One of the things I regret so much is back in back in high school, I was determined that because I'd pitched all of my life in baseball, went to high school baseball. And they said, no, you're going to play third base. You're not going to pitch because we've got this guy that is a left-hander. We've got to make a place for him. And so we'd rather you. I just walked off and never went back. And uh, cause if, uh, that's the way I was. If I couldn't do what I wanted to do, I was going to quit. I, boy, I had such a temper. I'd throw my ball glove plumb over the, over the backstop and into the stands and the craziest stuff that you've ever seen in your life. And uh, nobody should let me play, but, but but that's beside the point. And I mention it only only to, to make a point. And here's the point. There are a lot of people in churches that have that same kind of an attitude. If I can't do this or if I can't do that, then I'm just going to drop out. I mean, I've had people like that. We had a, a, a song leader years ago, and we decided to ordain some new deacons, and he wasn't one of them. Uh, and uh, it doesn't mean that he, you know he wasn't qualified. He probably would have made a fine deacon. I, I don't know, but but he wasn't one. That wasn't the choice of the church, and he just quit. And I went over to his house and I asked him. I said, "Bud, what in the world's going on? Well, you know, you, why why did you drop out?" And he said, "I want to be a deacon." And he said, "I think I'm just as qualified as any of those other guys, or more qualified." And Church don't want me to be a deacon, I'll I'll just go somewhere else. And I told him, I said, you know what you just did? You just proved to me the church made the right choice. You're not qualified to be a deacon. You know, somebody says, well, I'm not going to join the church if you don't have something for me to do. Let me tell you, if God puts you here, God has something for you to do, and it's not up to you to dictate to the leadership of the church as to where you're going to fit in. It's my responsibility as a pastor to help you discover your particular gifts and to place you where you can do the church the most good, where you fit in, where you help the most. And, and, and so that, that's the idea of the church being the body of Christ. It's a body made up of many members. And we need to understand that as Christian people that we are to have a part in that. And for me to surrender myself, present myself as a living sacrifice, it means that I am acknowledging my part in the body of Christ. Now let's talk about participation. Notice in verse number 6, and down through these verses here, he's going to show us that different members have different gifts, and he encourages each one to use their use their gifts in an humble way, the way that they're best suited. But I want you to notice that these gifts are all given by grace. And uh, verse number six: having then gifts differing, notice according to the grace that is given to us. In other words, we do not deserve the gifts that we have. It, it, it's something that we are to do for the glory of God, not the gratification of self. Somebody says, well, you know, I just... And I'm not going to start naming functions in the church right now because I... I don't want somebody to think I'm pointing them out, but there are a lot of people that have got something in mind, and I, they just love to do that. You know, they, they, they want to do that, but they don't want to do anything else. And and they just insist that they be used in, in, in that way. And, you know, we need to understand that God gifts us and gives us these various abilities all by His grace there's no room for pride here whatsoever. And don't ever say, well, I'll tell you what, I would make a, I'd make a better deacon than him, or I'd be a better trustee, I'd be a better teacher than he is. You, you know, that might be true. Uh, we've got a lot of men that are well qualified to be deacons in this church, and it wouldn't bother me for one second for us to ordain them as a deacon. But, you know, a church our size and with the number of deacons that we've got, uh, and, you know, if, if all of them function as they should, there's no real reason to just start ordaining more and more deacons. And it just might be that you fit in better somewhere else using the gifts that God has given you. And we need to keep that in mind. Now, Paul mentions seven different gifts. Uh, And and, 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 in each instance, he tells us how these gifts were to be exercised. Now, keep this in mind. I'll talk about it a little bit later on. When we talk about the gifts that are mentioned here, and to really do a thorough study on the spiritual gifts, we'd need to go over to the book of 1 Corinthians where he really, you know, gets down to a lot of details in this regards there in chapter number 12. And he gives a list of nine different spiritual gifts. Some of the spiritual gifts were temporary in nature, and some gifts that we get from God are permanent. And we're not going to discuss the difference right now, but I want you to understand that because when we talk about this first one, look at verse number 6, the gift of prophecy... We know later on from what the Bible says that the gift of prophecy was to cease. In other words, it's not needed today. But notice what he says. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. The word prophecy means speaking forth. It does not necessitate uh foretelling, as we think of. We always think about, you know, somebody is a prophet, and we think immediately of somebody that is telling us what the future is. But that's not the case. A prophet is someone who spoke under divine inspiration. By that, I mean they did not need to do any previous study. You know, today, if I'm going to preach a certain sermon I need to take some time to study and to see what the Bible says about it and arrange my thoughts or illustrations or whatever. They didn't need to do that. I mean, all they had to do was just stand up, and the Spirit of God came upon them, and the Spirit of God spoke through them. And so they were able to speak. And I've often thought, how neat would that be? I mean, you know, not even have to study or anything. And uh, like a prophet. But that's not the way it is. So they were what we would call God's mouthpiece. They were spokesmen for God. And by the way, whenever they so spoke under inspiration like that, it was without error. I mean, it was perfect. In fact, you know, the Bible over and over warned the children of Israel about the false prophets and, and the things that they would say wouldn't come to pass. And, of course, that was an evidence that God didn't send them Because they could speak with perfection as a result of the Spirit of God speaking through them. Now, notice the second gift that he mentions, verse number 7, ministry. He says, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Now, this is exactly the same word that's translated deacon. It speaks about a servant, one who ministers to the needs of others. And you see, look, just because, just because you don't have the office of a deacon does not mean you're not to do the work of a deacon. He's talking about the gift of ministry. You know, a lot of people have made the mistake over the years and a lot of churches right now are dying because they are under the thumb of a deacon's board rather than following the leadership of the pastor the deacons the deacons were never ordained and placed in the church for the purpose of running the church never they were there in order to minister to the members of the church to assist in the leadership of the church but i'm not talking about them leading i'm talking about freeing up the pastor so he could give himself to the word of god and to prayer that was their job that was their work you say yeah But then why is it you depend so much on the deacons whenever you call a deacons meeting, you want to talk to them, you know, about an issue in the church? I'll tell you why. Because one of the qualifications for being a deacon is that these men have some evidence of being spirit-filled men. And I don't care anything about the title. If I look, if there are some issues that we need to discuss pertaining to the church, I want every spirit-filled man I can get in on the discussion because they have abilities that other people do not have. And, and by the way, by the way, that that's, that that's, that doesn't mean they're better than somebody else. And by the way, that doesn't mean that they have some unique gift that you can't have. When any of us is filled with the Spirit of God, that is, under the leadership and the direction of the Spirit of God, we are enabled to make decisions and to do things that ordinarily that we couldn't do. And to function in the body of Christ, we need Spirit-filled men. But notice he's talking here about a particular gift, uh, the gift of ministry. And uh, having a title or having an office is one thing, Doing it is another. And so he says, if your gift is ministry, notice, let us wait on our ministering. What does that mean? It means do what you're supposed to do. If you're a deacon, deke. I mean, you know, yeah, uh, that, that, that's exactly what he's talking about. That if your job is ministry, then you ought to be ministry. Now, verse 7, the third thing is teaching, or he that teacheth on Teaching now, the teacher was not necessarily inspired in the sense that a prophet was, because, as I said, the prophet received and delivered his message by divine inspiration. but when it comes to the teacher, the teacher had to depend upon study, it had to depend, let's say upon their knowledge of the Old Testament, their knowledge of spiritual things. The prophet, when he spoke didn't make any heirs, but the teacher was subject to heirs. And so he's saying that the person that is gifted in regards to this matter of teaching, uh, let, him, let him teach. Let him be active in it. You say, well, yeah, but I've got that gift, but I'm not a teacher. Well, just because you don't have a class doesn't mean you can't teach someone. You know, there's a very real sense in which all of us ought to be teachers. Did you know that? Over in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the immaturity of believers. And there Paul said, you know, whenever the time comes, you know that, uh, that, that, that I ought to be able to feed you with good strong meat. You have need of, the, you know, of going back to the milk. And he says, the time when you ought to be teachers. You ought to be teachers. All of us have a ministry of some kind, all of us ought to be teaching someone, whether it's your children, whether it's having a minister ministry to your co-workers or whatever it is, we can all be involved in teaching. Now, look at verse number 8. He says, "...or he that exhorteth on exhortation." The word exhort means to invite or to encourage. Now, when it comes to teaching, that basically has to do with imparting information. In other words, you are giving out instructions. But the word exhortation has to do with the conscience and with the feelings of people. Maybe, maybe it would be better to explain it like this. When it comes to teaching, you are presenting the facts. You are giving out the information Uh, helping people to learn the Word of God. When you're preaching, you're doing exactly the same thing. I've heard some people, you know, complain, well, you know, that sermon was just there's too much teaching in it. What's that supposed to mean? If there's no teaching in it, you might as well sit down and shut up. I mean, there ought to be teaching. There ought to be instruction in it. But here's the difference. When it comes to preaching, that is to exhortation, there is an appeal to the people. You're trying to get them not only to learn the information, you are trying to, to, to reach them on an emotional level. You're trying to get them to act on the information, to put it into practice. And that's why preachers stomp their foot and pound the pulpit and wave their arms and spit and sputter all over. Uh, They they ought to be really engaged in what they're doing. They ought to be persuading people that, look, this is what we ought to do. Now, let's do it. And so some have the ministry of exhortation. Some don't. Verse number 8, notice the subject of giving. And he that giveth, let him do it. With simplicity. Now, the, the word giveth here means simply to impart to others what belongs to oneself. And, and notice what he says. In doing that, he says, with simplicity. That means singleness of heart or pure motives. Think about that for a little while. Purity of heart, pure motives... In our giving, you, you you might be surprised how many times money has been donated with impure motives. I'm going to see to it, you know, that I that I give more than so and so or or whatever. And so, in our giving, it's to be with simplicity. Now, wait a minute, in our giving, but the Bible says that all of us are to give, right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? We're all to give, all of God's children, we should all participate in that, right? But I'm telling you there are some people that have a they have a unique gift that God has given to them that not everybody possesses. Because although all of us can give something not everyone has the heart and the ability to give like others. And God has gifted some people to give. You say, well, I don't like old so-and-so because he's got too much money. Well, maybe he's got too much money because God gave him a gift of giving so he could minister to other people, you see. And so there is a gift of giving in addition To just giving, some people are gifted in that way that not everybody is. And and we talked about teaching. Everybody ought to be teaching somebody, but some people are specially specially gifted in that area of teaching. Now notice verse number 8, ruling. He that ruleth with diligence. Now this speaks about those in positions of leadership, those endowed with authority to guide other people. And notice what he says, that they are to do it with diligence, and that means with careful attention and zeal. When you see the word diligence, I always think of that definition, but I always think about this, that in describing it, it means to do the best you can as fast as you can. We're to do it with zeal, put everything we've got into it, and yet do the very best that we can. And that's what he's talking about, those that rule. It's to be with diligence. It's to be with great care. I think about what Peter said to the husbands in regards to their wife. You know, and he tells the husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Now, he's very clear on what, the expectations are for the husbands and the wives. The husband's in a position of leadership. She is to acknowledge that. She is to follow him and so on and so forth. But, notice, he says he is to what? To live with her according to knowledge. Now remember, he's in a position of authority, but he's to live with her according to knowledge. But what does that mean? It means intelligent consideration. Intelligent consideration, being considerate of her needs, considerate of her desires, and what have you. You see, just because you're in a position of authority over somebody else doesn't give you the right to be rude to them, doesn't give you the right to put, you know, their neck under your foot. Uh, Whenever I think back over the years, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've seen good men ruined as a result of promotion. People that, I mean, they were dedicated, good, meek, humble Christian people until all of a sudden you gave them a class. All of a sudden now they're the youth ministry. All of a sudden they're, you know, in charge of this or that. And the very minute you put them in charge of something, I mean, it goes to their head and all of a sudden they become a hindrance instead of a help. Now, notice he says, those that rule ought to do it with diligence. Now, notice as he goes on, he speaks about mercy. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Mercy has to do with kindness. Always think of the word kindness when you think about mercy because it has to do with caring for people that are sick and those that are needy. And notice what he says, that we are to discharge that duty with cheerfulness. There's some people that are just really gifted in the area of helping others, the area of, of ministering to others, the, of showing mercy to to others they have a unique ability that not everybody has and notice he gives them a warning he says always do it with cheerfulness sometimes that's easier said than done most of our folks that been around for a lot of years and that you know that were a part of the old northway group over there will remember old brother Brown old brother Brown he and by, by the way he was just one of several that I could mention, and I loved him dearly all of his life, but i got to tell you that he nearly drove me crazy sometimes. Bless his heart, and, you know, uh, he, he'd call up and he would need this or he would need that, and usually, usually it was an excuse to go to the store where you could get something the doctor didn't want him to have. And you'd send him in, so i got to go to the store and get my medicine and he come out with a half a gallon of ice cream, you know. But uh, And I always told him, Brother Brown, I don't mind helping you, but, but please, you've got to give me a day or two's notice. And boy, there have been some times, I'm just confessing now, there have been some times that I showed mercy to him, but it wasn't with cheerfulness. I mean, my lower lip was dragging the ground all the way over to his house, and I couldn't wait till I got back home. And it shouldn't be that way, folks. We ought to do what we do with cheerfulness. Now, let's go back to verse number 6. Having then gifts differing, we just talked about seven of these, Having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us with a prophecy, let us prophesy, and so on and so forth. Now, I don't, as I said, I don't want to get into debate about which gifts are permanent, which gifts were temporary. My purpose tonight is to assure you that you do have some God-given gift. And I want to encourage you to use that as God directs. What you have to remember is this. Your gift is a tool, not a toy. It's a tool, not a toy. Your gift is a tool to edify, that is to build up the body of Christ. It's not a toy that you use to entertain yourself or others. And we need to keep that in mind. And let me give you the key to all of this. And that is the fact that if we are going to successfully exercise our gifts, we must have the fruit of the Spirit. And that's mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul is showing this very clearly. Are all you kids familiar with, with the fruit of the Spirit? Uh, who, who could name me some of the nine things mentioned there? You have to speak up loud. Love, joy, what what was back there? I couldn't hear a word you said, but I think think you quoted all of them, didn't you? Well, I got the gift of reading minds. No, not really. But I could tell the way he was going at it. He knew what he was talking about. But folks, that's the key. Let me tell you why that's true. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, Paul, and we, we talked about this the other day, he said, you come behind in none of the gifts. In other words, this church had members who possessed all of the spiritual gifts. It's not like that, you know, well, the church over at Ephesus, you know, they had members with all of these gifts, and we, we don't have those gifts. No, he said, you don't come behind any of the churches in regards to these gifts. You've got all of the gifts. The problem is this, that they were operating in the flesh instead of the Spirit. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, and it's very clear what he says as he describes here what the problem in the church was. Verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, and neither yet now are ye able. Now notice, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you in vain and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? You see, they possess all of the gifts, but they are so carnal that they are not able to use their gifts in an effective way. Now, that was the problem with the Corinthians, but what about you? Are you a good steward of the gift that God has given you? If not, why not? What is it that's hindering you? Let me give you some thought starters. Just some sparks that maybe it will start the fire and get you to thinking about what's been holding you back. You look at this church here in Corinth, and what was wrong with them? Well, spiritual maturity, for one, immaturity, for one thing. They were immature. They should have grown. They should have developed spiritually. But the, Paul said, you're still like little babies. And I've got to feed you with milk instead of with the meat of the Word. You, you gag on it. You can't take the meat of the Word. And it's like I've got to feed you like a little baby. And there are a lot of people that God has given gifts to, but they're not able to really effectively use those gifts because of the spiritual immaturity in their life. Not only that, but he talks about envy. Boy, I'll tell you what, that is a ministry killer, envy. And he talks about strife. And he talks about division. You know, whenever I think about all of those things, and we could mention more, but automatically there's one word that just encompasses all of those things and jumps out at me, and that's the word pride. It was pride that hindered this church, pride that kept them from being able to to effectively use their spiritual gifts. And let me tell you, pride... Is probably the biggest enemy that any of us face. We could go on and on and on with that list, trying to, trying to find the one thing that, you know, troubles you the most. But somewhere in that, pride is involved. And we need to ask ourselves tonight, you know, what's hindering me? God has given me some gift. And I'm to use it for the edification of the body of Christ. But I'm not really being effective. I'm, or I'm not using my gift at all. Why not? Why not? You need to find out what it is. It, it's got to be something. What is it that holds you back? I I heard something that just made me want to cry my eyes out here while back. And I, I, I can't... I can't just come out and tell you exactly what it was, but it had to do with somebody doing something by way of ministry in the church. And something happened, something was said, and as a result of that, this person said, I'll never do that again. That is so heartbreaking. Number one, it's heartbreaking to think that somebody would say something negative. Negative and discourage a person like that. But it's also heartbreaking that you would let somebody stop you from serving God. How dare you? You don't have the right to do that. And you know, you might you might use that as an excuse, and you might criticize the person that discouraged you, and you know, you go on and say, I'm not going to do it again because, you know, this or that. What does that make you? The the person you're critical of is no worse than you are if you're going to quit because of what they did. You have any right to quit on God. We never do. Isn't it wonderful to know that you have some special gift of grace that God has given you? You say, well, I don't know what it is. There's some people, you know, can write songs, write poetry. write. uh, There's some people that have... You know, the world might call it the gift of gab, but spiritually speaking, that's not what it is. There's just some people that have got that unique ability to converse with others. And it's beyond the ordinary. All of us ought to witness, but there are some people, wow, they, they just amaze you the way that they can engage others in a conversation and witness to others and be polite about it and so forth. And hey, find your gift. And use it. You don't need a title. You don't need an office. You don't need a degree. All you need to do is find what your gift is and do your best to fulfill it. And the only thing that really matters is whenever it's all over and we stand before Christ and hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's all that really matters. Amen. All right. Thank you. us stand, please. Wouldn't it be something...